Hey, good morning. Good to see you all. You guys are doing okay? All right. Well, hey, we're finishing up our series, What to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. And um, I've, I've just, I love that we're a church that really wants to talk about real things. And if you're new here, if this is your first time here, I want to welcome you. This truly is a place you can belong before you believe, meaning that you don't have to believe what I believe, what our church believes, to, to build friendships here and to explore faith and to, and to be part of this thing. And so um, uh, we're glad you're here. And it's our honor to help, <clears throat> help you no matter where you're at where you've come from, take steps forward on your journey. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in because we got an awesome story to go through today. So uh, would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this awesome day. Thank you for each and every heart and soul that you have in this building. Would you bless them? And Lord, if there is something that we need to hear today, would you open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear it? In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been um, in this, this series looking at a story of, of King David before he's king. Um, the worst day of his life comes home with his band of warriors and uh, all their families have been taken uh, from their home, from their home city called Ziklag, which is a great name for a town. And um, it, it, their families have been kidnapped, their, their uh, homes have been burned to the ground, they've lost everything. It's the worst day of David's life. And last week we looked at just the power of reorienting your vision. And God gives David a word and he reorients his whole vision uh, around that. And he begins leading his men around a, a vision of pursuing what's been lost and recovering what's been lost. And it's this powerful moment of leadership in his life. And I want to jump right back into the story. And we're actually going to cover some ground. And, and the, basically, the story kind of tells itself. So I'm just going to highlight some things. I've kind of broke it down into chapters, in a sense. So if you have your um, notes, you can kind of follow along with that. And the, the really cool thing about this story is that there's a really neat twist at the end. Uh, and again, this is our last week in this series, so I'm really hoping that this is something that you can take with you, um, and there's nuggets that you can give to friends that may, might be going through hardship. Um, but let's jump in. Just to bring us up to speed, uh, verse 8, the Lord spoke to David. He said, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake and rescue the people, rescue your families. And um, picking up verse 9, it says, so David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook of Bezor, um, but 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the, the brook. So David continued the pursuit with the 400 that he had. So like attrition hits immediately after he casts the vision, after he gets excited about the goal, after he clings to like some hope in a hopeless situation. And you know how hard it is just to like hold on to hope sometimes in the middle of like a bleak situation? Like uh, a lot of people would have had a lot of doubts. Like, are we really going to get our families back? Are we, we're not big enough. We're not strong enough to overtake uh, the Amalekites who are the people who, who kidnapped their families. And um, it'd be hard enough to hold on to hope, but but then, then when they get to like like the first little barrier, like a little you know brook, a little river, there's these two hundred of his men are like, ah, oh, we're too tired. Really, they're just kind of giving up on the goals, giving up on David. And and how disheartening is it when you're setting out to do to, after some goals and there's attrition that early on? Have any of you guys experienced that before? 
where there's like attrition or people like back out, you know, because like, they don't believe in the mission or what you're doing or they're too tired or whatever. Like that would be so discouraging. But David just keeps going. He keeps pursuing. And, and the, what I'm calling this portion of the story is the pursuit. David will not stop pursuing just because some other people give up. Some other people are too tired. He says, hey, that's okay. And he doesn't defame them, doesn't make, you know, make fun of them, uh, shame them. He just keeps going. He doesn't stop pursuing the goal that God has put in his heart. I think that's so powerful. In verse 11, it says, Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat, some water to drink, and they gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins. I love how specific that is. They gave him some raisins. The person who was rationing it was not very excited to give away those uh, clusters of raisins. For he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights, and before long his strength returned. To whom... Do you belong and where do you come from? David asked him. Well, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite, which is, he's a slave of one of the people that had taken David's family. And he replied, my my master abandoned me three days ago because I was, I was sick. Really? He's like, you need to abandon me. And then he gets left. All the other slaves are jealous. We should have thought of that. Um, I think it's so fascinating to me, like, on the journey and the pursuit, like here's the goal. It can be really easy to be so goal-oriented or, or so hurting and so in pain because remember, this is still like the worst day, the worst season of David's life. It can be so easy just to bypass the people that God puts in our path. People that like might seem needy, like, oh, we just gonna have to feed them and who knows if he can help us. And, and yet David and his men, they stop and they take care of them and they're blessed through stopping and taking care of them. Who are the people that God has put in your life in the worst moments, the worst seasons that would be easy to bypass? That God is saying, no, 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 stop. And it doesn't mean you stop your mission, doesn't mean you stop the goal, but you can stop for a moment. And maybe, and here's another question, here's the flip side to that. Are you called at some times in your life when, he, when you don't even feel like you have much to be that person for someone who's in the worst moment of their life? where you can give them a moment of encouragement, a moment of direction to help them on their way. I, I just think it's worth noticing in this story that, that, that there's no throwaway people. Now, uh, after he says, I'm an Egyptian, I'm a, a Malachite slave, uh, it goes on to verse 14. It says, we were on our way back from, from raiding the Carathites and the Negev and the territory of Judah. That's where uh, David's family is in the land of Caleb, and we had just burned Ziklag, his hometown. Like he's like, you were there. He, this this slave saw the devastation, saw what happened, and um, David asked him, "Will you lead me to this band of raiders?" You could just see like, like the the steely conviction in David's voice. Will you lead me to these raiders? Will you lead me to these people? Um, the young man replied, if you take me an oath on God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, then I will guide you to them. And so he led David to them and they found the Amalekites spread out across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amounts of plunder that they had taken from the Philistines and the land of Judah, like all of David's wealth, his family, other people that he didn't even know, like their wealth, their people, like all that stuff had been taken. And here these people are dancing and, and, and celebrating their you know, they're stealing and they're arsonry. They've, they've burned places to the ground. Like, just they're, they're evil. They're celebrating it. 
And um, something really powerful struck me when I was reading this. It might be helpful to you. Um, It might not. But David is not afraid to name his enemy. David is not afraid to name that the enemy that he has are the Amalekites, and he verifies it. He verifies that these are the enemies, and he, and he also isn't afraid to name what's been lost, like his family. His, everything that he has that has been stolen, he's not afraid to name it. And in this story, it, it's, it's named. And here's where I think this can be really powerful if we, if we keep this in our minds and our hearts, is sometimes when we are facing the worst day of our life, the worst moments of our life, we either ignore or are afraid to name the thing that is taken from us. We're afraid to name the enemy. We're afraid to name cancer. We're afraid to name betrayal. We're afraid to name loss, addiction. Sometimes we get afraid to name it. And the, the enemy is named in this story. It's named. And what's lost is, lost is named. And sometimes we need to be able to, to say, like betrayal has stolen my trust. It's stolen the, the, the joy of my family. Like I can't, I can't trust you anymore. I can't trust this group anymore. And being able to name it, uh, um, bankruptcy has taken my peace. My inner, like my whole life is in inner turmoil. Um, some people it's like cancer has stolen my health being able to name it and be clear about it like this is the enemy and this is what's happened and this is the real loss that it's named some people addiction has stolen my husband or it's taken my wife it's it's taken my son it's taken my daughter and being just being able to name it not ignoring not denying not running from it naming it it takes away its power, and it also puts more power in the promises of God than it does in the enemy that we're afraid to name. Now going on, the next chapter I'm calling The Battle. Continue following on in your, in your notes. The story tells itself, but the battle happens. It's, it says, David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout that night and the entire next day. until the, like, You can just see how angry... Like, David and his men are looking at them celebrating and they see their families as captives. They've taken and burned everything. They've ruined their lives. You can just see like the anger and justice rising up in them. Can, can you not? How many of you guys have been uh, kind of journeying with us on this story and in this, in this uh, series? A few, a few of you? Okay, okay, good. More than a few. There are like two people. I was like, oh man, you don't know what the heck I'm talking about. Um, but how many of you guys have been waiting for this moment? It's like, where it's like, go get them. The go get them moment. Justice. You know, I know violence is bad. How many of you guys know the Old Testament? Like, it doesn't varnish things. It kind of tells you exactly what happen, happens. And we can read this with our, you know, you know our, our, our sensibilities for today's day and age. And we can kind of be like, well, that's, you know, that's bad. But there's something in us that's like, ah, revenge. Finally, some justice. Well, there's a few of you on there. Like, I know the rest of you are too good to think that, but some of us are like, ah, yes. And, um, but I, I think this is, there's some real power in this. I, 
let's finish this part of the battle. It's really interesting. It says that it was like all day, all night, and into the next day until evening. So this is like a long battle. Their fury is being unleashed. And then it says none of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. How many men does David have? 400, right? So he, they're like, they are well outmanned, but their fury... Is, and, and God is with them and like all these people are defeated and 400 young men who are watching the older men who are like like no we're going to fight for our honor they're like watching them get the crap kicked out of them and these 400 young men are like run to the camels can you I mean I was reading this morning I was laughing about this just imagining the young guys like seeing the battle, weighing the options, and running to the camels. And you can imagine them getting, getting home to the homeland of the Malachites, and like, where's everyone else? Like, we don't know. They got the crap kicked out. We just jumped on the camels and ran. It's a very noble story. I don't know. I just laughed about these guys getting on camels and running. And, uh, and David and his men took out the rest, unleashing their anger. So they've named the enemy and what's been lost, and they've engaged the enemy in battle. And in our, in our times, I think it's really important, those of us who follow Jesus, the Old Testament has some incredible lessons to give us. One of the most incredible things is picture, it gives us sometimes a picture of the spiritual reality. Um, Ephesians 6 teaches us, this is from the New Testament, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Isn't that interesting? Like, I, like when people bug me or have wronged me or, you know, I'm, it's the worst moment or one of the worst moments of my life. Like, I can see the person, see the thing, and just want to, like, blame it and, and put all my fury on this thing or situation or person or people. But the Bible teaches us, no, 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 there's a deeper spiritual reality and we're missing it. We're just staying on the surface. If we think that that's going to solve everything is pouring out our anger and violence like out here. And some of us are like, well, yeah, but I'll feel better at least. You know, I just, I, you know, I, I want some justice. But we won't, we're not understanding the true reality if we don't listen to what the New Testament says. It teaches us we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. Well, what are we fighting against then? But against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirit, spirit, spirits in the heavenly places. There is spiritual darkness. The Bible teaches us that there is a spiritual reality. And there, there are some things that happen in this world uh, that you really can only say, man, that is demonic. That is evil. And there are other things going on that seem much less evil, and maybe just, you know, maybe that's not the best, or it's like, who knows? And, but there are things underneath the surface uh, going on. I had a friend who had he got his walls checked one time. His, his son-in-law checked his walls because their, their, electric, their electric outlets kept sparking. And when he looked... When, when they looked under the walls, they, were fi- they found that all the electric wiring was open. And so there was arcing happening all the time, but no one could ever see it because they were behind the walls. They had to look behind the walls to see the danger, to see like the house could burn down at any moment. And in fact, they were lucky to be alive. Like the house easily could have gone up in flames. And the only symptom of it was just like some weird sparking from one of the outlets. And so spiritual reality is like that. There is spiritual darkness. And sometimes we don't see what's going on behind the walls, but what's going on behind the walls can burn the house down. And 
And, and the Bible teaches us and names, um, names the enemy, the true enemy. In verse 8 of, of 1 Peter 5, it says, Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a, a lion, looking for someone to devour. That the, the Bible names the leader of spiritual darkness. And, and, and its name is Satan. He's the devil of old. Like from the story of Adam and Eve, like he's been trying to uh, steal, kill, and destroy humans. Relationships with each other, relationships with God, any way that he can deceive, divide, devour, destroy the lives of humanity and keep us from God and destroy people, whether it's through addiction or sickness or uh, anger and unforgiveness and bitterness, any way he can do that, he wins. So when he gets people fighting people, like he's winning. When he gets, when he, any way he can, um, he wants to divide. He wants to seek to uh, steal, kill, and destroy. There is an enemy, and Satan. And Ephesians 6.13 says this about the spiritual reality. Therefore, because there, are, there is spiritual darkness, there is an evil one. He says, put on every piece of God's armor so that you'll be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. On the worst days and the worst moments of your life, realize there's something greater going on, deeper going on, that maybe you don't see, and there is an enemy at work. Be ready to stand against them in the worst moments, the worst time of evil. Then, now pay attention to this, he says, then, after the battle, you will still be standing firm. David was fighting this physical battle for his family. The reality is we are in a battle for the hearts and minds and lives of our families and the people around us. God is in a battle for our hearts and our lives. And he wants us to be standing at the end of it. And I don't have time to teach today. I, you know, I'll, I'll probably have time another day to do this. But I wanted to give you a few nuggets of how we stand and how we fight that battle. And it's a different battle than the one David's fighting. It's not against flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle. And, and the spiritual reality is that we, we fight with weapons. If you're a person of faith, you're a Jesus person, we are given weapons. But they're the weapons of peace. Not the weapons that the world uses. Not lying and dishonesty and hatred and uh, fury and revenge. It's a t- we fight with a totally different arsenal. The arsenal of the kingdom of God, the weapons of peace. Are, if you were to read the rest of Ephesians 6, go into things like this. The truth. We don't fight lies with lies. We fight with the truth. The truth sets us free, even if it's hard. That's a tool. Write that down on your notes if you want. These are the weapons of peace. Um, the faithful love of God. That we, we focus on the good, uh, the goodness of God. The faithful love of God. God, not what's wrong with this person and how bad this person is and how and we're focusing on the evil and the negative. We turn our eyes, remember, reorienting um, our vision to the goodness of God, his love, his faithfulness, because that's how we change and become who we're supposed to become. It's by looking to him. Um, peace. We fight with, uh, with, with peace. We're not fighting with war. We're trying to bring peace. And anything, anytime you're fighting for something that brings more fighting... Anytime you're, 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 you're using violence to fight violence that begets more violence, um, we're not using the weapons that God has given us. We're using the, man, the, the weapons that man has fashioned, that Satan wants us to be using. Um, God's uh, salvation, God's spirit, God's spirit is at work in the middle of any situation on the worst day of your life. You have God's spirit with you. 
Grab a hold of that. I mean, that is a weapon. It's so easy to forget. It's so easy to be deceived and, and get our focus off the, of the truths that God has given us, off the weapons of peace, that God's Spirit is with you. Don't forget that. God's Word is like a lamp to your feet. It's like a light that lights the way for you. God's Word is so powerful. And it, it, it's this Word that, that, like, when we read it, I've even known people that when they're reading the Bible, it's so hard for them to focus. It's like they can't focus even on a few words. And I had a, a mentor, a, a, a theology professor, who was like this incredible mentor for me, and he, he ran into that. And he had people where they were so, whenever they tried to read the Bible, they could read anything else, watch anything else, they didn't have any any distraction but distraction like a buzzing in their mind and heart they couldn't focus when they would read the bible and and he was like would you just pray ask that god would quiet your heart and mind and help you read this and the moment they prayed that demonic buzz that demonic distraction went away and all of a sudden they were reading god's word reading the truth reading what god says about them believing what god says about them not what other things or other situations say about them getting in the word that is a weapon for the kingdom and then simply um prayer and praise like they like reaching out to god and asking for god's help it, it like lifts you from the valley to the mountaintop like if you're in the valley and you're the worst moment the worst day of your life when you pray it lifts you from your situation it doesn't fix everything but it lifts you up so you can have a a different perspective. You can see what God sees. And that changes, the, that changes the view. And you praise Him and your joy comes back. And the last thing I'll mention that Paul uses over and over and over again is just the name of Jesus. There's power in His name. Why is there power in the name of Jesus? Because a name represents the character of somebody. When you hear my name, George, you might think of a bald guy who stands up front and talks sometimes at church. If you know, the more you know me, the more you attach my character to my name. The more I know you, the more I attach the, your character to your name. Jesus, the, the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the one who loved people and accepted them before they had to change, who loved people when others were rejecting them. The character of Jesus, the power of Jesus is behind that name. And so when we minister to people, when we walk into tough situations, into rooms that are blown up and lives that are, that are going through the worst of worst, we go in the name of Jesus. Not in our own name, not in our own power, but in his name. These are the weapons of the kingdom of God, the weapons of peace. Now, we've got to keep moving for time's sake uh, to the victory of the battle. Victory. David got back everything, it says, the Amalekites had taken. And he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. He, he got everything. He also recovered all the flocks, uh, herds, and his men drove them ahead of all the other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. Do you remember what God had told him back when he had nothing? Back when his men had stopped believing in him? Back when he maybe had started doubting himself and stopped believing in himself. Stopped believing that this silly prophecy that he'd be king someday. Like, I can't even be, I've lost everything. How can I be king? Do you remember what God had said to him? God had said this, pursue them, pursue the enemy. For you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. Pursue and rescue pursue and rescue and what did God do 
He made good on his promise. Like David had to step out in faith. He had to trust. He made good on his promise. And here in the story, again, we see a spiritual reality. Like, like the Old Testament story is, has a New Testament meaning, like meaning for us today that there's a picture here that David and, the, and his victory are an image of the victory that we find as Christians in Christ. That Jesus is like the greater David who has this victory that's incredible. It, it Colossians 1.13, it captures the victory that we see David rescuing these kidnapped people from, from darkness, and Jesus rescuing the world from darkness. It says in first Coloss- or excuse me, in Colossians 1, for he has rescued us, talking about God the Father, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us from, uh, into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. So God has, has taken those who are in darkness and chains and um, broken and in the, not just the worst day, they're just in the worst kingdom they can be in. And God takes them from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and transfers them to the kingdom of light. How did he do that? By purchasing their freedom and forgiveness through his son, Jesus. Jesus on the cross forgives and changes us. I love how it says in 1 Corinthians 15, thank God, not thanking ourselves, not thanking a plan that we came up with to fix our lives and to, and to help get us out of the kingdom of darkness and free us. No, we couldn't free ourselves. There was no plan that would work. There was no like you know way we could think ourselves out or act ourselves out or relate ourselves to the right person. It's God's work. So thank God. He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater David who freed us from Satan, sin, and death, the kingdom of darkness. He transferred us. It's this unexpected victory. And the victory of God in Jesus Christ, while we were like those who were, like in David's story, we're like the ones who were kidnapped by the Amalekites. We'd been kidnapped by spiritual darkness by our sin and we were trapped we were chained there's nothing we could do about it and Jesus comes in and he frees us but his freedom his victory looked like defeat that Jesus was was put on a cross Jesus never sinned never did anything wrong he loved people he came to to rescue the world God's message to Jesus uh, is the same message that God gave to David pursue them and rescue them pursue them and rescue them and so Jesus pursued us and in his pursuit and in his love and in his using the weapons of peace and and love and prayer and praise and all those things we just went over the the way Jesus lived perfectly the way the world treated him was they put him on the cross and so Jesus absorbed that sin in, in multiple ways one of them was that their sin their evil put Jesus on the cross they said we're going to kill you because you look like sin to us you look we can't accept what you're doing the way you're living we can't accept it it's too different it messes with our power it messes with our control and Jesus absorbed that sin. The other sin he absorbed was all the evil and sin of the, of the world. He just he took it into himself. And when all that evil was taken, he died. And then it was broken. 
the power, the chains that hold us in, the, in darkness, the, the stuff that we think we can never get over, the stuff that we never think we can heal from is healed because Jesus died on the cross, absorbing it. And then the Father raised him to life. And the reason Jesus was raised to new life is, is because he had lived perfectly. He never sinned. He never did anything that wrong the way we do. And so he was raised back to life. Death could not hold him. Those chains couldn't hold his arms. The chains that hold our arms because we... We've sinned and we fall short and we're broken. Could not hold Jesus. And I I love that all of a sudden Jesus' victory becomes our victory. Amen? The victory of Jesus becomes our victory. I was trying to think of a way to describe that. And I just, this is kind of silly, but maybe hang with me for a second. I used to work with middle schoolers. I, mean, I had a team of mentors that would help these middle, middle schoolers, 6th grade to 8th grade. And um, I remember one time we were like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We are going to, we're going to divide the weak from the strong. We're going to play some death ball, which is, which is dodgeball, but with these really hard dodgeballs. You ever played dodgeball before? With really hard, like when it hits you in the face and you just become enraged, you know? Uh, but it's part of the game. Well, we started playing this game, and the middle schoolers we were playing. They had the sixth grade through eighth grade, and they were all you know mixed on teams. And I had leaders who were adults, and they're throwing at each other. I had leaders that would get hit really hard in the face or other areas, and they'd be like, "God!" They'd have to control their anger, and they'd have to go to the wall. And when you're out, you're on the wall, and the way you get people out is you hit them with the ball or you catch the ball that they throw. And um, in this game, it was just so intense. Kids were just wailing on each other, and the most athletic were picking on the least athletic. They were. It was just like their time to shine they're like there's no computers here you know it's like wham hitting these kids and um i remember there was a few staff that were like like forgot that they weren't one of the kids you know and they're like hitting these little sixth graders boom i'm like you're on the wall you need to calm down and uh finally this one team had just dominated they had all these athletic kids older kids and uh there was one little diminutive figure this little kid totally unathletic and he was the last one and all his whole team was on the wall and they're like kicking the wall and they're like oh we've lost and no one believed in this kid and and all of a sudden all these like eighth graders and like one or two staff who had you know were in the mind of a child at the time they just were they were like licking their chops we're going to destroy them and all the dodgeballs were on their side so they just started throwing at him and uh it was the most interesting thing to watch. This kid would just like move like Quicksilver. He'd just move and dodge and dodge and dodge. And then he threw one of the, one of the dodgeballs, and he, it was the most pitiful throw. It was just like this rainbow lob. It was like, shh, went right to this kid. It was such an easy toss. I mean, if he caught it, he was out. But the kid, uh, he couldn't believe he tossed it that easy, and it balanced off. He panicked, and he missed it. He was like, ah, the whole team was so mad. But they were kind of glad because they could keep throwing things at him. And uh, so they kept throwing, and this kid was like, all of a sudden started, boom, catch. That person's out, and then boom, catch. He was nowhere near as strong or fast, but he just had these little moves. And all of a sudden, the team stopped whining, and the t- his team on the wall started watching, and they started cheering, and they're like, go, you know, and they're like, catch it. No, 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 don't throw it, don't throw it. They did not want him to throw it. And boom, one by one, he just started taking out each of these big, evil opponent enemies. <laughs> And at the very end, there one of the big staff like threw it as hard as he could. And he just backed up and he caught this thing in his arms and it just hit him right in his gut, like knocked him back and he fell on the ground. And then he sat up and his whole team was no way. They just ran out, rushed the ground. Have you ever been on a dodgeball court when the when the smallest 
figure, the lone figure left. It gets raised by all these other... It was amazing. The, the smell was terrible, but the, the <laughs> exaltation... And his victory was his team's victory. Everyone on his team won because he had won. And he had won in the most unexpected way. Didn't even throw a ball to get someone out. Just was absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. The victory of Jesus frees us all. And I'm, his victory is our victory. And I'm, my, my fear is that there are people here today that have been freed from the kingdom of darkness transferred into the kingdom of light but they're walking around like their chains are still on and you've been freed you've been freed live in the light of freedom don't act like you're still in the dark walk away from that whenever the darkness starts to creep back in and whether it's your darkness in your own heart or darkness from others uh, darkness of the situation walk in the light walk in the glorious freedom of the sons and daughters of God. You're freed. And if you don't know Jesus and, you've been, and you're in the darkness and, and it's time for you to come into the light, don't trust yourself, don't trust others, trust in Jesus. He won the victory for you on the cross. Trust in Him. Now I've got to tell you guys the twist in the story. We've got to bring this to an end. This is, the, this is what I think is one of the most beautiful endings to the story. You, I, I would never have expected this. Then David returned to the brook of Bazor and met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go forward with him. They had abandoned him when he needed him most. When they were in the middle of the fire, they had abandoned him. They went out to meet David and his men. I'm sure they were feeling shame. They saw the victory. And David greeted them joyfully. He was happy to see them. He didn't shame them. He said, but it says in verse 22, but some evil troublemakers among David's men, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. I'm like thinking to myself, I'm, maybe I'm one of those troublemakers. Like, what did these guys do to deserve it? And, and they go, well, give them their wives and their children, but like, tell them to be gone, like to get out of They're not part of us, and they don't get anything else. Nothing! Just their families. Is there anyone willing to admit that you have a little bit of a heart of a troublemaker? And like, like you'd be like, fair's fair, right? Like, come on, we took the risk. We freed their families. Here you go. But I don't want anything to do with you. Watch David's response here, you guys. Unbelievable. But David said to them, no, 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 my brothers. Don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. What we have is a gift. We didn't earn it. God gave this to us. He gave it back to us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of raiders that attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? Who's going to listen to you? Who are you going to lead if this is the kind of leadership you have? We follow the God who frees people, the God who gave us everything. And, and, and surely if we follow that God, we're not going to act like that. We share and share alike, and those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. Isn't that like, isn't he being so gracious? Those who go to battle and those who guarded the equipment. They guarded the No, they gave up. And from then on, David made it 
this a decree and regulation for Israel and still follow it to that, to that day. Like, this was the way that David lived. David was saying, God's victory was our victory. And don't miss this, our victory is their victory. There's something so powerful in that, isn't there? And we can forget that. We can receive the victory from God. We can receive it and want it, take it. But then the people who have let us down that weren't there when we were going through the fire or the things that disappoint, the people who don't deserve, we can be like, man, I got I want to receive. But Christ's victory is our victory. And our victory is their victory. It's a victory that we give away over and over. It doesn't mean we don't have hard conversations like, where the heck were you when we were going through the fire? All I have is yours. But come on, man. Step up. Next time, don't do that. God's victory is our victory. Our victory is their victory. I just think that's so powerful. Um, fin- finishes with this, this part of the story, and, and then we'll pray and close. Verse 26, when uh, he arrived at Ziklag, David sent part of the plunder to the elders of Judah, who were his friends. People who didn't have anything, who might not even have known that he had everything taken from him. Here's a present for you. Take from the Lord's, taken from the Lord's enemy. David gave generously from his pain. David gave from his pain and his victory. You know, it would have been really easy, like me, I, I would have been like, man, well, like, what, what we have? It would been so easy just to focus on self and even to become selfish or, just, or maybe not selfish, just like, man, I, I, I've been through a hard day. This has been a long, hard day. I think I deserve some rest. David did not rest until he had given out of his, the, his pain and his victory. Now get this, in this story, you know, David, 15 years earlier, had been promised to be king. Back in Bethlehem, he had been promised to be king. Well, where is he living now? In Ziklag, where everything had been taken, the worst day of his life. Who the heck cares about Ziklag? That town, Ziklag, was the in-between place of the prophecy and then the fulfillment. So three days, get this, three days after David gives from his pain and from his victory, Saul dies and God gives him the kingdom. David had no idea that God was going to give him the kingdom then. He was living in Ziklag. But David started act, he was acting like the king before he was given the throne. I think there's something there for us, friends. Like sometimes we're in the middle of Ziklag. We're right in the middle of what God has promised us to become. And we're in the path of becoming. We're in the path of pain. But while you're becoming who God designed you to be, while you're becoming who you were born to be, start acting like that king today because you don't know when God is going to give you what you could never earn, the thing that you you know you're born for, you don't know when he's going to drop it on you. And in this story, David showed that he was ready and God gave it to him. He didn't have a clue. He was acting like a king before he was a king. How many of us need to start walking in the light, acting like the kings and queens, acting like the the sons and daughters of God that we are? Not letting darkness distract us, not being selfish, and giving generously from our pain and our victories. God's victory is our victory, our victory.
is their victory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for you. I'm so grateful that um, that we can learn from a story like David. That we can learn to live a life um, where we reorient our vision and we go after what you've, you've called us to become. And we trust you, Lord. And I, I, I thank you that you have won the victory for us. And Lord, would you... Would you help us to live like the people we want to become? We're not going to be perfect at it. Help us to be generous when we're in pain. Help us to be loving and kind when, when it feels like others have, have, have just ripped our hearts out. Help us to see the people that are around us. Help us to love them. Help us to reorient our vision over and over and over again on the worst days, the worst moments of our life. Lord, would you meet us there and would you change us into the people you want us to be? Amen.